Good morning, Servants Church. I hope you enjoyed uh, your break and uh, being serenaded by the Martin family. Whatever that Northwind song means, I have no clue, but that's okay. It was fun, and they were cute, and we love that song that they read. So we're going to be in um, 2 Chronicles chapters 33 and 34. We're almost through with our series in the book of 1 and 2, uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And so if you want to turn there, uh, we will pray, and we will get into it together. 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and 34. You're there? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you give us your word so that we would know we can trust you. And I pray, Father, that you would use your word today to bring us to that place of faith. Lord, for those that don't know you yet, bring them to the place of saving faith, believing maybe for the first time. And for those of us that do know you, Lord, help us to to, uh, be strengthened in faith, Lord, to uh, be completely assured of your trustworthiness and all that you're doing in our life in the stuff that's tough, in the stuff that's great. Uh, Lord, all of it working together for our good and for your glory, Lord. We pray, Father, to that end, you would grant us repentance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we're in a section, the last section, really, of the book of Two Chronicles, really from chapter 33 to the end of the book, uh, is one section the author has an intention of. And we're looking at these two chapters together, specifically because the author seems to want to bring a comparison here. He's comparing two uh, kings. He's comparing Manasseh, who is seen as the worst of all the kings of Judah, with Josiah, who is seen as the last of the good kings of Judah. And the comparison really is, the, is, is bringing these two kind of, these kings on the opposite end of the spectrum and showing that both of them needed to come to a place of repentance. Now, if you hear the word repentance, you might feel a bit negative, or if you hear someone say you need to repent, you might feel like that's a bit harsh or judgmental or critical. But actually, repentance is a great truth that we need to grab onto. In fact, repentance is meant to be a blessing. In fact, it's a necessary and and, uh, beneficial part of the believer's relationship with God, is what it means to repent is bigger than what we usually think. In fact, repentance isn't just about us feeling bad for our sin. Repentance is also about us changing our mind about our sin and choosing to trust God instead. A lot of us look at sin and we think, or we look at things that the Bible says are sin, and we think, well, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's bad. Or I don't agree with doing that. I don't think that's good. And so what happens is when we come to a place of repentance, we change our mind and begin to see sin as God sees sin. And also instead of choosing to trust what we think is right, we choose what God thinks is right. But also repentance is not about us living in guilt. It's not about this constant sense of, oh, I'm not good or I, I'm not uh, uh, um, as, as good as I'm supposed to be. But it's about us learning to live in the refreshment and the forgiveness that comes to us that we can experience when we turn back to God. And so today we're going to see how both, both of these two kings, uh, Manasseh and Josiah, experienced the blessing of repentance. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 33, where we start reading about Manasseh. 
It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's the longest reign of any king of Judah. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that uh, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals, and he made wooden images. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, In, your, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars in all the house of, uh, for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying. He, he used witchcraft and sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will, not for, I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed from your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole uh, law and statutes and the ordinance by the hand of Moses. Now we look at Manasseh and we see how his, his reign is beginning to be described. And it seems like he's involved in sin that would be unforgivable. Uh, and before we talk about some of the specifics that he got himself involved in, I want you to notice that the author of Chronicles is specifically wanting to frame what's happening here between two quotes. In verse 4, he talks about, he quotes the Lord saying, In Jerusalem shall my name be uh, forever. And then later on in verses 7 and 8, he talks about how God said to David, in the house, uh, in this house and in Jerusalem, I will put my name forever. And so there's a, re a real, uh, there's a reality here that the author wants to remind the readers of, that the, the temple of God, Jerusalem, the city of God, its purpose was to make God's character known. And one of the reasons why God is so hot on making sure we don't worship any other gods is because what we tend to do naturally is take the goodness of God and twist it and deform it into something it's not. So if we, if we do rightly see God as holy, as God who is set apart from sin, we twist that and make God into someone who's harsh and angry all the time and wants nothing to do with the people that he's created. Or if we rightly see God as good, as loving and merciful, we twist that into something that is, well, God's permissive. We can do pretty much what we want because God's like the big granddad in the sky who actually doesn't really care if we sin or not. And so what happens, these idols that, uh, that uh, Israel found themselves uh, making or bowing down to, these were really just kind of perversions of the real God. This is why they would take some of these idols and actually, Manasseh actually put them inside the temple to be worshipped. It's like saying, oh, no, no, we still worship God, but actually they worship a perverted image of God. And so the author of Chronicles wants us to see this is what idolatry is. And it's important for us to recognize that God's not saying, hey, that's, that's bad because it's forbidden. No, God's saying that's forbidden because it's bad. 
If the greatest thing God can give us is himself, when we pervert his character, when we twist who he is and worship idols instead, well, that's as bad as it can get. That, that, that is us uh, forfeiting the greatest thing that God can give us, the very thing God made us for, which was to know him. Now, there's a lot of things that are, are, are talked about, a lot of things listed about the sins that Manasseh got himself into and led the children of, of Judah into. And, 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 and we could talk about all these things, but for the sake of time, I want to just point out one of the areas where his idol worship is, is brought to the forefront. And that's in verse 6, where it says that he, Manasseh, caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, it's interesting because this, this is a, uh, what is also referred to uh, earlier in the book of Leviticus as uh, worshiping the god of Moloch. And we don't know that much about Moloch, this, this false Canaanite god, except for that he was a Canaanite god. It is a false god. It's a false idol. But we do know a little bit about how Moloch demanded to be worshipped, how they would worship this false god. They had this, this huge statue of Moloch. You can uh, Google search Moloch, M-O-L-E-C-K, and you can see some of the images. And there's these huge, uh, uh, it was this huge kind of, looks like a half dog, half man, and his arms are out like this. They would make him of bronze, and they would build a fire around this idol until the, the whole idol would, would glow burning hot. And they would, as its arms were like they're glowing burning hot, this idol, they would take their children and place them on the arms of this idol and watch them burn alive. Now, we hear this and you think, John, you shouldn't share that kind of thing. It's repulsive. It's distasteful. It is. It's horrible. But it also happened. And I want to share that not for shock value, but for the sense of, of, of understanding how heinous idolatry becomes, how hideous this sin leads to. Now, you might be watching this today and thinking, okay, John, that's, I can see how ignorant people back in the day would do these kinds of things. But we need to be honest. We do the same thing now. We, we are just as guilty of hideous idolatry. Think about how we idolize our careers or our own lives or our own lifestyles and use that as, well, as an excuse to do things like abortion where we take our children and sacrifice them at the idol of, of our own convenience. We can be guilty of the very same thing. And it's just as heinous to God now as it was then. Now, I want to say, because I, 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 the, the point that I'm making in these first eight verses is that Manasseh's sins seem unforgivable. And if you are someone who's been invo involved with abortion... I want you to know it's not unforgivable. And I want you to stay with me. Because here's what we see happening, though. Before we get to the good news, we need to see more of the bad news. In verse 9, it says that Manasseh seduced Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. But notice it says, they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon the captains, brought upon them the captains of the army of the Assyrians who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now, 
It's important to understand here that the author of Chronicles is including this detail because it obviously would parallel what the first readers would have experienced, or at least their, their parents and grandparents would have experienced. Because after this time, about 100 years after this time, all of Judah will go into captivity in Babylon. But before that, we had Manasseh who goes into captivity and leads the, begins to lead the people that direction because of his own sinfulness. And it's important for us to recognize this because Manasseh's influence led to Judah's destruction ultimately. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah would say a hundred years after this time, he would say, uh, or God would say through him, I will make Israel abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Now, the reason I, I want you guys to see this is because it's important for us to recognize that here Manasseh is doing things that are, seem unforgivable. Here Manasseh's influence does lead historically to Judah's destruction. And before we talk about God's work of, of restoring us through repentance, it's important for us to recognize that our sin always has negative effects on others. We don't want to loosen that. In fact, we're going to see in a second how God restored Manasseh, but Judah still experienced the consequences of their own sinful, being sinfully influenced by Manasseh. We can be forgiven of our sins and still have the negative consequence of our sin. That's important. This is why God tells us not to do it. This is why God tries to keep us from sin. But they find themselves in this place, Manasseh specifically being taken with a hook in his nose and with brawn fetters on his wrist, taken to Babylon. And it says in verse 12, Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him and, he received, and God received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I love this because it's, it's a great example that we see over and over again in Scripture of God using affliction to get somebody's attention. So Manasseh was in this place where he probably thought, this is it, I'm going to die in, in a Babylonian prison, ha having had the humiliation and pain of having a, a, a nose ring and being pulled out of my own country uh, into this place of imprisonment. And yet God uses this affliction to cause him to say, God, where are you? I need you now. Well, what happens? God restores him, brings him back. And he knows, man, the God of my fathers, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of my father, Hezekiah, he is truly the Lord God. And so what does he do? He begins to change. Verse 14 says, After this he built a wall outside of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate and in the closed Ophel. And he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and, and all the altars he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. He cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, uh, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. 
Now, the reason this is important to see is that here Manasseh, when he has this experience, when he realizes that he's at his low point and this affliction causes him to turn back to God, what happens? He turns back to God and that brings real change. Because what we're seeing here is, is Manasseh's repentance. And Manasseh's repentance was this miraculous work of God. And we know it's a miraculous work of God because it brings about real change. Real repentance always brings about real change. Now what's interesting here as we read the last bit about Manasseh from verses 18 to 20 is the author of Chronicles seems to be repeating himself. He's just kind of told us the story, and then he kind of repeats the story, in a sense, repeats the story twice in these few verses in Manasseh's epitaph. Listen. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God, we just read about this, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord of God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Now we, this is not the kings we have in the Bible. It's, it's a book we don't have anymore. And his prayer, and how, he was, and how God received his entreaty, and his sins and trespasses, and the sites which he built high places and wooden images to carve images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written in the sayings of Hosea. Now, we don't have those either, but again, we just read about this. And so then it says, So Manasseh rested with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Now, now this is important. It's important because it's like the author wants to be really, really clear. Listen, we have lots of historical information about how bad Manasseh was, but also about how when he turned to God in humility, and, and real repentance always begins with real humility, when he humbled himself and he turned back to God, God saved him. He saved Manasseh. Now, this is really important because one of the things we see about the blessing of repentance is, is that repentance means, listen, this is what we learn from Manasseh. Repentance means that we're trusting God's mercy at our worst. I want you to think about this. The, the, we, the, all indications seem to be that Manasseh turns back to God towards the end of his very long reign. So, so let's say it was around the year 40 of his reign. 40 years of leading God's people into sinful abominable, horrible, heinous behavior, and then he turns to God. And what happens? God forgives him. God restores him. You see, it's important for us to recognize, as much as it's important for us to recognize that our sin always has a negative effect on other people, it's also just, if not more so important for us to recognize that none of us are so sinful that God can't save us. None of us. You see, I don't know what's been involved in, in your, is involved in your present right now or in your past, but God knows. And as guilty as you might feel, I have to say, honestly, you're probably way worse than you realize. But the good news is, is God's love for you is greater than you can imagine. And God's willingness to restore you is greater than you can imagine. Listen to this, what the Bible says about Jesus helps us know that God wants to save us. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, Because Jesus lives forever, His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through Him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. You see, we don't just have a temporary priest who has to offer sacrifices over and over and over again for his own sin and for other sins. We have this great high priest, Jesus, who once for all through his own death and resurrection offered himself as his perfect sacrifice 
so that we could be perfectly acceptable to God. See, repentance is us turning to God. It's not us trying to fix our own sin. It's recognizing that we're broken in our own sin, and therefore we turn to God, and God saves us. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Here's what you need to understand. If you want God to save you, you need to understand that you're a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. See, repentance is a blessing, guys, because it's, it's us recognizing. It's God bringing us to a place of recognizing our sin is what's causing my destruction. My, my sin is what is dragging me down. And I can trust God for His mercy even when I'm at my worst. Repentance is turning back to God and saying, yes, God, I want to trust your mercy because even at my worst, it's there. This is what we learned from Manasseh. Now, Manasseh had this long reign of unfaithfulness only to be restored toward the end. And so we can hear that and we can think, man, God is that gracious. And maybe wrongly think, okay, well, if God was that patient with Manasseh, maybe he'll be that patient for me. And so maybe one of these days when I'm really feeling bad, I'll then get right with God. Maybe I'll wait to the end of my life after I've kind of done the things that I want to do. And, and then I'll kind of go, okay, God, I did mess up. And so now I'm going to come to you and get it right. Well, we have the testimony of his son to warn us against that. Look at verse 21. Now, Ammon, this is the son of Manasseh, was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned only two years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and his father, as his father Manasseh had done, for Ammon sacrificed to all carved image which his father Manasseh had made and served them, and he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself but Ammon uh, trespassed more and more then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house but the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon the people of the land made uh, then the people of the man made his son Josiah king in his place now as important as us for, to, to recognize how gracious God was to Manasseh, it's also important for us to recognize that Manasseh's son didn't follow that repentance. You see, this is the thing. It's not so much our sinfulness that keeps us from experiencing the relationship with God that is ours in Christ, that God made us for and redeemed us, redeems us for. It's not so much our sinfulness as it is our unrepentance are unwilling to turn back to God. We are keeping ourselves from blessings, both temporal and, per and eternal, because we're refusing to turn away from our sin and choose God instead. Guys, repentance is meant to be a blessing for you. Maybe you're just feeling that call to repentance and it feels heavy and you're like, ah, I don't want to hear this. Well, turn to God. Turn back to God and say, God, forgive me. I'm so resistant of what you want to do. I'm so slow to turn to you. God is not trying to rip you off. His call to you to repent is to restore you, even if you've done the most heinous sins like Manasseh. Just please don't misinterpret God's mercy 
for permission, God's patience for permission for you to continue to sin. So we see from Manasseh, repentance means we trust God's mercy when we're at our worst. But now look at Josiah. Because with Josiah, we see that repentance means resting at God's, in God's grace when we're at our best. Look at verse 1 of chapter 34. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand. And it tells us in verse 3, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. So, so let's do the math quickly. He's eight years old when he becomes king, Right? So probably during the same time that his father, uh, or right after his father Ammon, who dies uh, prematurely, they think, okay, well then Josiah has to be king. And so even though he's eight, he probably has advisors making decisions for him. But what's amazing about Josiah is when he's 16 years old, 16 years old, that's not that old, is it? He desires to seek after God. What's great about this is that it, we, you, we, there's a sense that the author of Chronicles wants us to see. Look, Manasseh was 12. He chose to do evil. Josiah was 16. He chose to seek God. Now, you young people who might be listening to this, I want you to think about this. You're not too young to start seeking after God. God loves you. He wants to know you. And I love what it says, again, in verse 3. It says that he begins to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, so on and so forth. Drop down to verse 7. And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images and beaten carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So here he is, 16, he starts seeking the Lord. Just four years later, at 20 years old, he says, I'm going to be this, this, I'm going to be this warrior for God, and I'm going to make sure that God's people return to the right worship of God. This is what he does. I love this because he doesn't just seek God as a teenager and seek to bring real change. Here he's beginning to, like even in his 20s, saying, I want to see God's people bring in real change. And that continues from verses 8 to 13. Look what it says. In the 18th year of his reign, so now he's only 26 years old, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, uh, the, and the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joash, the recorder, to repair the house uh, of the Lord his God. Now, rather than read all these verses, I want you to jump down to verse 12. And the men who were paid to repair did the work faithfully. Their, over, uh, their overseers were, and he names the overseers, they were called to supervise. Notice verse 12 says, to supervise all the other, others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with instruments of music. These were over, verse 13, the burden bearers and were, and were overseers of all who did the work of any kind of service and some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. Now, the reason I skipped those verses was, you can go back and read these later, it's almost verbatim what, they, what was said about um, uh, his great-grandfather, um, Hezekiah, that he was doing the same kind of repairs. But I also want you to notice that what he's doing here is, is just like Hezekiah, he's, Josiah is restoring the temple of God for the worship of God. And I love the fact that it shows us that the, the, the Levitical 
priests who were in charge of music were overseeing the building project. You know why that happened? Because as the builders are building, guess what the guys who do music are doing? They're playing music. It's like, let's, let's this whole process be worship unto God. I love that. So the simple thing is, Josiah here, as a young man, is authentically seeking after God. He desires to know the God of Scripture. He desires to know the God of his uh, his fathers. He desires that God be worshipped the way God wants to be. He's zealous for that that, uh, worship to come to pass. And I love this because I have to say this reminds me a lot of this generation, this generation of young people. You guys are zealous to see God be worshipped. You're zealous to see things, see God do what he wants to do. You're you know, in a similar place as, as Josiah. And I want you to understand something. If you, like Josiah, want to seek after God, you need to know something. It's because God is, is graciously seeking after you. One of the things that's so important for us to remember is, is, is that God is the initiator, uh, the initiator of every good thing in our life. Every kind of move towards God is because he's first moved towards us. Now we have this command in, in James, right? It's not on the screen, but you can look it up later. In James chapter 4 where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But who's initiating that command? God is. It's God who by his spirit says, draw near. The psalmist talks about it. Again, it won't be on the screen, but you can look it up. I think it's Psalm 27 where the psalmist says, when, when you said, Lord, seek my face... My heart said, Lord, your face I will seek. God initiates, we respond. That's the way it always is and always will be. So if you have a desire that says, I want to seek after God, I want to know God, even if you're not sure if you're doing it good enough or if you're not sure if it's, you're frustrated because it's not happening as quick as you want, take courage, be encouraged. God is working in your life. He's working in your life. So Josiah is authentically seeking God. He's seen the, uh, the, the temple of God restored to the worship of God. And what happens next? Verse 14. So as this temple is restored, what happens? As they're cleaning it out and, and getting it ready for the real worship, it says in verse 14, Now, when they brought out the money which was uh, brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shepham the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and it, uh, and it has been delivered into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan said, to the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan began to read it before the king. Thus it happened, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. That's a sign of repentance. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, and many others. He says, go, verse 21, go inquire of the Lord for me and and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according all that is written in this book. This is interesting, isn't it? Because here's Josiah who has authentically been seeking after God, 
but obviously without God's word in his life. He's wanted to worship God. He's wanted to draw near to God. He's wanted to bring others into that place, but without the word of God in his life, specifically without the law of God in his life. We don't know for sure, but probably the, 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 the scroll they had was the scroll from which we'd call the book of Deuteronomy. But what happens is, as this is read, as he's exposed to the, to the law of God, he finds himself exposed by the law of God. He finds himself in a place where God's perfection that's seen in the law is exposing his imperfection. See, this is what God's law does. God's law reveals the blind spots that we have in our heart. In other words, Josiah is in a place where he's convicted as a lawbreaker. He doesn't just read the law and think, okay, good, I'm doing that, that. I'm not doing those, but that's okay. At least I'm doing these good things, and maybe my good things will outweigh my bad things. No, that's not what he sees. He rightly sees that God is perfect, that his law is good and perfect, and that all the commands are, that he gives to us are commands that we should fulfill. He sees this and recognizes, wow, there's so many things that myself and my fathers before me have not done. We must be under the wrath of God. He feels the weight of conviction. Now, this is exactly what God's law is meant to do. Listen to this. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And this is important because remember the context. This is Josiah. Josiah's a good king. He's, he's, the, he's the last good king. In some ways, what he did was even better than his, his, his forefather Hezekiah. He, he walked in the ways of David. He helped God's people be restored. But when he's exposed to the law, he's convicted as a lawbreaker. Now, this is important because bless, uh, repentance is meant to be this great blessing, but we can't experience repentance without this kind of conviction. Conviction is a painful but necessary part of our turning back to God. Uh, think of it this way. You start feeling some maybe some pains in your sides or some pains in your back. You're not really sure what they are. They feel like they're internal. You go to the GP. You have a conversation with the GP. The GP gives you some bad news. The bad news is uh, uh, we think this might be uh, cancer. We're going to do some blood tests and see what happens. They do the blood test. The blood tests come back and they say, listen, here's the deal. It, it is cancer. We're going to have to do some serious operation. How are you feeling? You're feeling distracted. You're, you're feeling depressed. You're feeling worried. You're feeling scared. It's not news you want to hear. But more than that, what has to happen is if the doctor is going to do the operation, guess what you have to happen? What you have to experience? The cutting open of your body. The removal, the painful removal of those cancerous tumors. The only hope for healing is if the, if the surgeon cuts you open and removes that which is there. It's not enough for him to say, look, you have cancer. You can go, wow, that's good for me to know. Thank you. Puts me in balance in my life now. That's not enough. You actually have to have the surgery. And it's a surgery you cannot perform on yourself. You see, this is what the law of God does. The law of God isn't just the test, isn't just the... the um, 
the diagnosis that you are indeed, you do indeed have this disease called sin, but the law of God is also the call of you to let God cut you open and take that out. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, where he begins to cut you open and say, this needs to be removed. Now, you might be thinking at this point, well, it doesn't sound much of a blessing to me, John. Well, hey, if you've ever had cancer and been delivered from cancer and had surgery that removed cancer, you would agree with me that the fact that they can do that, they can cut you open and cause you pain and remove that which would kill you is a blessing. You see, it's the same way. And Josiah, even though he's much better than we would be, even at this place, he needs this conviction. He needs to come to a place where he realizes, God, you have to do the surgery. You have to bring the conviction. You have to not just expose, but remove the sin in my life. And so what happens Josiah calls uh, the, the, the men around him, go find a, a, a prophet uh, to tell me what's going on. Look at verse 22. So Hilkiah and the kings appointed, uh, and, the, and those the king had appointed, went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shilam, the son of Tokhath, and the son of Hershah, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke to her to that effect. And they said, look, look, here's where we are with God because we've neglected God's word. So we don't know anything about this prophetess except the fact that she does rightly prophesy for the Lord. Look what she says in verse 24. She says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will bring a calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book, which have been read before the king of Judah. That's the curses on God's people because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me uh, to anger with all the works of their hand. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. Now think about this for a second. This prophetess is basically saying what God says in His Word about the coming judgment on His people because they have broken His law, that's going to happen. It's still going to happen. But what does He say? Notice. What does she say? Notice. Verse 26, But as for the king of Judah, who sent you into inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also heard you. Uh, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. And so they brought this uh, brought back this word to the king. So what's happening here? Josiah's being promised personal mercy. He, he, Josiah has this promise. When he feels the conviction of God, and he knows that all people, all of God's people are under that same conviction, they all been, they've all been shown guilty by God's law. And he responds with humility, with a tenderness of heart, and says, oh man, we need to hear from God. Will God still show us mercy? The message comes back, well, Josiah, you humbled yourself, and so you'll receive mercy. Now, again, thinking about what, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 about God's law and about God's mercy, listen to this. We're not made right by the law, but what did he say? In verse 22 of Romans chapter 3, he says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. 
This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. Now, we're going to see in, in this context that even though Judah as a nation is at least an, is following some of the commands that Josiah, some of the reforms that Josiah is bringing uh, to pass, their hearts weren't changed. You see, what's going on here is that we're seeing that you, we need something more than just a lifestyle change. We need more than just to stop doing some moral things that are wrong, to kind of correct those things. God calls us to more than that. We need more than that. We need an actual heart transformation. And that's what's going on with Josiah. In a New Testament sense, we just read in Romans, that's what happens to us when we put our faith in Jesus. This is why Jesus died for our sins. He died for us, not so we could just be morally corrected. He lived and died for us so that we could be spiritually, eternally changed from the inside out. We could be forgiven and free. There could be this inward transformation. See, this is the personal uh, mercy that God promises everyone who will come to Him through Jesus. Everyone who will put their faith in Jesus, He promises us this personal mercy. Now here's what's really interesting. What's interesting as we, as we finish up this chapter is God has already said through this prophetess, hasn't He? Okay, Josiah, I'm going to show you personal uh, uh, mercy, but, but all that Judah learned from Manasseh, they're still, going to, they're still following in their hearts, and therefore they're going to experience my judgment. And yet, what does Josiah do? Look at verse 29. Then the king uh, sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the, uh, of the book of the covenant which he had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before God to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform uh, the words of the covenant that are written in this book. I want you to think about this. God has already said to Josiah, Josiah, you're gonna, you've received my mercy, you can experience my mercy. So we would expect Josiah uh, uh, to respond to that and say, God, praise you, I trust you, I trust your covenant, I want to turn to you, I want to walk with you. But Josiah comes as king before the whole nation and calls the whole nation to repentance. Well, this is interesting. He's publicly reestablishing this covenant relationship with God. He's recognizing the covenant, he reads the covenant out, before the people, and he says, we want to recommit ourselves to this, and he calls people to do this. Now, keep going, verse 32. And he made all that were present in Jerusalem and, and Benjamin take a stand, uh, so that the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Then Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that, uh, that belonged to the children of Israel, and made all who are present in Israel diligently serve the Lord God, all the days of his, uh, all the all his days, they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. So, when this shows us something about the fact that the heart of Judah was basically kept in check because of Josiah's commitment, 
So their behavior was kept in, set, in check by uh, Josiah's commitment, but their hearts hadn't necessarily changed. So why, why would Josiah seek after this national repentance if God says, look, I'm going to judge the nation? This is why. Because the reality of a corporate judgment, an unavoidable judgment, does not dismiss the availability of personal mercy. In 2 Peter chapter 3, there's all the, Peter is, is breaking down all these promises, these realities of the promise of Jesus coming back and bringing justice to this earth, of judging this earth. And in the middle of that, here's what he says. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the promises that we have of God going to judge this world, of God going to rid this world of injustice, that's good news because one day we're going to live in a world where righteousness reigns and we look forward to that. But it's also sobering news. And as we, as we live in this present day where we're, we're experiencing a global pandemic and it makes us think, could this be the judgment of God? It's at least meant to be uh, something that grabs our attention to think about. There is one day going to be a judgment of God. That is a, a reality that, that is unavoidable. But we as individuals can choose to avoid this. We can choose to respond to the work of God's Holy Spirit. We can choose to turn the repentance to God. And we can, we can learn to rest in God's saving grace that's been given to us through Jesus. This is what repentance is. This is what we learn from Josiah. Repentance isn't just, it doesn't just mean trusting in God's mercy when we're at our worst. It also means learning to rest in God's grace even when we're in our best. Our God, you are this gracious. You will turn even individuals in a nation doomed for judgment. You will turn individuals back to yourself. So here's the question I want to leave you with. Have you turned back to God? I want to speak first and foremost to you who, who maybe aren't churched, who are new to this Jesus stuff. We, we address you guys each Sunday because we recognize that this is sometimes difficult to understand. But do you recognize that you are a sinner? I mean, we all are sinners. I mean, think about this. Let's talk about God's law for a second. God gives us these laws. He says, one of the laws he says is that we shouldn't bear false, false witness. We haven't, we shouldn't lie. Have you ever lied? If you have, what does that make you? It makes you a liar. The Bible says that we should not commit adultery. We see this as a good lie, a good, uh, a good law. Because none of us uh, wants the pain of being, someone being unfaithful to us. So God says, don't do it to each other. Yet we do it all the time. Even if we're in a, a committed relationship, we're unfaithful in our hearts. We wish our spouse or partner was like somebody else. We commit adultery in our hearts. We're adulterers. Think about the first commandment. Have no other gods before him. All of us want to do what Israel has done, what Judah has done, what Manasseh did. We want to pervert the person of God into a God that we can control, a God who's just like us. See, this is what God's law does to us. Are we willing to repent? Are we willing to change our minds and instead of thinking, no, 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 this is okay. I'm allowed to do this. No, 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 I, I can get away with this. No, change our minds and realize we can't get away with this and experience the blessing and the refreshing of turning back to God and saying, God, I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. I want to worship you alone as my God.
Do that today. You who are already Christians, this world is, it seems to be falling apart. And one of the good things about that is it exposes how we ourselves are often falling apart. I think about all the stuff that's happening in, in the United States, the riots about the race issues there. And it's, it's amazing to me that we, that my countrymen, that myself still haven't fully repented of racism, that we're still guilty of this. We're still guilty either by active participating or by indifference. We need to repent. I think about what's going on uh, uh, in this country in the division and the evil suspicions that we have towards each other and the false hope in something that can't save us, namely science, meant to be a help but can't be a savior. We do this and then we get frustrated because it doesn't work. Are we willing to repent and believe that only Jesus can save us? Guys, God, God wants us to experience refreshing. God wants us to experience forgiveness. God wants us to have the blessing of unbroken fellowship with him. And to experience that, we need to repent. So, Probably none of you are as bad as Manasseh, and probably none of you are as good as Josiah. But all of us need to repent. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us repentance and that we would turn to you afresh and walk with you. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.